Today we're starting a new sermon series and it's called Tales of Old. And in this sermon series, we're going to take a fresh look at uh, and glean from some of the stories in the Old Testament. The hope is that in revisiting some of these stories, we would grow and continue to grow and be encouraged um, from what was happening in the Old Testament. Uh, so you can go on ahead and take out your sermon apps and your Bibles. Um, we're going to go to the Word. Exodus 34, 6, 7. Here's what it says. And the Lord passed before him, passed before Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Matthew chapter 1 verse 6 says, And Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Today, I want to speak on a message called Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace. And before I get to the message today, it's important that we lay a foundation because that is going to be our reference point every time that we are, as we walk through the pages of Scripture this morning. I want to unpack first and foremost what grace means so that every time I say the word grace, you have an understanding of some of the depth and the magnitude of what grace actually really means. And so when speaking of amazing grace, it's important to ask, what is grace? What is grace? The Hebrew word for grace is the word ken. Now the word ken is a word that's packed filled. It's rich with meaning. Our English language is limited in how it can express the true meaning of grace. And so we can't narrow it down to just one thing, but you will find all throughout scripture, multiple different uses of the word grace. Number one, grace means beauty or elegance. The word grace is often used to refer to something that is beautiful and elegant in its appearance. For example, Proverbs 11 verse 16 says, A gracious hen woman retains honor. The author is describing the woman as hen. It is speaking to her beauty. It's speaking to her elegance. Proverbs 1 verse 9, For they will be graceful hen ornament on your head. When speaking of a father's correction and a mother's instruction, the author of Proverbs is saying that they are hen. They are like a graceful, beautiful, elegant ornament upon your head. Proverbs 17 verse 8 says, a present is a precious hen stone in the eyes of its possessor. In other words, a gift is likened to a beautiful stone in the eyes of the person who was receiving the gift. Ecclesiastes chapter 10, 12 says, the words of a wise man's mouth are gracious, are hen. We read that the words of a wise man are gracious. That means that they are able to craft words in a beautiful way. Grace, therefore, refers to that which is elegant. It refers to that which is stunning. It refers to that which is beautiful. But grace is not merely about the beauty or the elegance of the object, but it's, a way, it's, it's about the way that the observer perceives the object that then provokes a response of favor in the observer. In other words, grace is the ability to look at something Regardless of whether it's beautiful or a mess or a chaos or broken, grace is the ability to look at something or someone and regardless of their state, view them as beautiful. And that beauty then provokes a response of favour, a response of kindness, a response of goodwill. 
Number two, grace means to be generous towards or to show favour. There are many examples of grace being an act of generosity or an act of showing favour or acceptance. For example, in the story of Jacob and Esau, these two brothers, they've got mad beef. It's been 20 years since they last seen each other. The last time that Jacob saw Esau, Esau hated Jacob because Jacob stole the blessing that was meant to be for Esau. And so Jacob at the time wanted to kill Esau. He wanted, he was filled with rage and anger. Now they're finally about to meet each other again. And so the Bible says Esau ran to Jacob. They embraced each other and they wept. Esau, uh, Jacob brought flocks and, and herds as a gift to Esau. And Esau said to Jacob, actually, you didn't have to do that. You don't have to do, give me the rest. It's okay, you can keep it. And here's what Jacob says. No, please, if I have now found favor, hen, in your sight, then receive my present from my hand. In other words, Jacob is saying, no, Esau, please be kind to me. Please be generous to me. Please show me your acceptance by receiving my gift. You see, whenever you see this word hen or this word favor or this word grace throughout the Old Testament, what you will see is that it's often used in the context of men to men or, or, or human beings to human beings. Um, it's, in the, it's used in the context of someone of a lower status receiving the gift of grace, the gift of hen, the gift of kindness, the gift of favor from a person of a higher status. You'll also find it's not just used in the context of men, but it's used in the context of man and God. Moses prayed and he said, if now I have found favor, found grace, hen in your sight. Moses is asking God to please show kindness towards him and the people of Israel by going among them. We also read that the first man in the Bible found, uh, was the one to find grace, hen in the eyes of the Lord. That means that Noah found favor, grace, in the eyes of God. God needed no reason to show Noah grace or favor. The reason is in God. It's not based on what Noah could do. God showed grace simply because of who God is. And so we see that grace not only means to view something as beautiful that then evokes a response of favor, but grace also means to be generous or to show favor, not because we deserve it, but because of the one giving grace. When we understand this about grace, we understand that grace has nothing to do with our worthiness and everything to do with the giver of grace. When we understand this, we understand that we can stop trying to give God reasons to show us grace because the reasons are in God. The reasons are not in us. God's giving to us is undeserved. God's giving to us is unmerited. When we understand this about grace, we understand that God sees us in terms of beauty and favor. God doesn't think you're beautiful and favorable because you've impressed Him so much. God looks at you and sees you in His grace in terms of love and favor and beauty and acceptance. He sees it all that way because there's something in God that makes Him see us that way. When we understand this about grace, we understand that God doesn't love us out of obligation because we're His children. He just simply loves us because it's who he is. Amazing grace. I want you to go with me to 2 Samuel 11 and 12. I'm going to be preaching from those chapters this morning. If anybody knew what it meant to experience grace, it'll be King David. 
And so we see David's rise. David was anointed as the king of Israel. Uh, Israel. The Bible says that David became a great king and the Lord of hosts was with him. We read that under the, the reign of David, the Ark of the Covenant that represented the presence of God was brought back to Jerusalem. We also find that David was a king who showed kindness to the descendants of the last king who tried to kill him. Not only that, but during David's reign, we read that he was able to defeat their foes, the Ammonites and the Syrians. Not only that, but David during, uh, but David was this incredible king. He was a powerful warrior who rode on the backs of horses. He ran into wars and slayed thousands of Philistine. He was a sweet psalmist of Israel. He was a man after God's own heart. But we get to this part of his story where right before our eyes, King David takes a fall. The Bible says that in the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, King David sends out his armies to fight the battle against the Ammonites, but David remains in Jerusalem. 2 Samuel 11, 2-5 says, Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful to behold. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And someone said, Is this not, the, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers and took her and she came to him and he lay with her for she was cleansed from her impurity and she returned to her house. And the woman conceived. So she sent and told David and said, I am with child. And here we see that David falls into sin. The Bible says that he saw a woman bathing. Her name was Bathsheba. She had a man of her own. His name was Uriah. And Uriah was one of the uh, king's mighty men. The Bible says that David saw her. He sent for her and he took her. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? It's familiar because we see the same pattern in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. Genesis 3, 6 says, When the woman saw that the tree was good for fruit, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Eve saw the tree, she took the fruit and then she ate the fruit. And so through the disobedience of man, sin entered into the world. And when sin entered the, into the world, death entered into the world also. And so because of that, death spread to all because all have sinned. David was pretty much acting out verbatim the pattern of his ancestors. He saw the woman, he took her and he lay with her. But that's not all because now she's conceived. And so she sends a message with four words that would change David's life. She says, I am with child. And just like they did in the Garden of Eden, David doesn't own what he's done. Instead, he tries to cover up his sin. David tries to cover his sin. The Bible says that David attempts to use Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. David attempts to use him to create plausible deniability. In other words, if David could get Uriah to go home and sleep with Bathsheba and lay with him, then no one will have realized or know that actually this child was of David's doing. David says to Uriah, go home and wash your feet. This phrase was an idiom that meant to go home and go to bed. Part of the custom of the day was that soldiers who were in battle had to refrain from sexual relations with their wives. And so for Uriah to hear David say, go to your home and wash your feet, Uriah would have understood that as meaning that he was released from the custom and was free to enjoy his wife sexually. But the Bible says that Uriah doesn't go home. 
In fact, he sleeps at the door of the king's palace with all of his servants. When David finds out about this, he says, Uriah, why haven't you gone down to your house? And Uriah says, the Ark of the Covenant, the armies of Israel, the armies of Judah are all living in tents. Even my master and his men are camping in the open field. How could I go home and wine and dine and lay there with my wife while they're all out there? I can't do it. But David who's trying to cover up his sin, takes it up a notch. (laughs) David invites Uriah to to dinner and David gets him drunk. But even then, drunk Uriah was responding better than sober David. David couldn't get Uriah to go home to his wife. Uriah slept at the door of the king's palace. David, who's still trying to cover up his sin, takes it up another notch. This time, the Bible says David writes a letter He gives it to Uriah and tells him, take this to Joab who's in the middle of the battlefield. The letter has instructions that said, place Uriah on the front lines where the battle is the most dangerous and then pull back so that he'll be killed. David is so consumed with covering his sin that he's prepared to have one of his mighty and loyal men deliver their own death note. 2 Samuel 11, 16 to 17 says, so Joab assigned Uriah to a spot close to the city wall where he knew the enemy's strongest men were fighting. And when the enemy soldiers came out to the city to fight, Uriah the Hittite was killed along with several other Israel soldiers. Further down in 2 Samuel eleven twenty six 26 to 27, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. When the period of mourning was over, David sent for her and brought her to the palace and she became one of his wives. Then she gave birth to a son, but the Lord was displeased with what David had done. David is so blinded by the need to hide his sin. He's blinded by the need to not be found out, to not be caught out, to not be exposed. And so he's prepared to stop at nothing. David, a man after God's own heart, David, who prayed down the glory of God. David, who had a special anointing on his life. David, who took a bunch of men into a cave called Adullam and trained them for war and prepared them to be skillful. David, who marched in a militants and a power that was absolutely awesome. David, who killed giants that the whole entire army of Israel couldn't kill. David, who danced out of his clothes until the glory of God rested on his shoulders. David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, is now David, the betrayer. David, the hypocrite. David, the deceiver. David, the manipulator. David, the adulterer. David, the murderer. How do you find the grace to keep on living when you've made a mess after mess after mess and bad choice after bad choice after bad choice? How do you find the grace to survive a divorce, to to survive a, a conflict, a disaster, a moment of poor judgment. How? The Bible says that God sent a prophet by the name of Nathan to David. And here's what Nathan says. There were two men in a certain town. One was rich and one was poor. The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. The poor man owned nothing but one little lamb he had bought. He raised that little lamb and it grew up with his children. It ate from the man's own plate and drank from his cup. He cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. One day, a guest arrived at the home of the rich man, but instead of killing an animal from his own flock or herd, he took the poor man's lamb and killed it and prepared it for his guest. Nathan is saying to David, what do you suppose that we do in this situation? When David heard this, 
he was angry. He got so mad, he responded and said, as surely as the Lord lives, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die and he should pay fourfold to the poor man for the one that he stole. Isn't it funny how we always know what should be done about somebody else's situation? It's so funny how we always know what needs to be done about someone else's stuff. Boy, if we were ever judged by the judgments that we execute on others, some of us would probably get the death sentence. But if your marriage, you know, if your marriage was measured by the way you measure my marriage, if your children were measured by the way that you measure my children, if your serving was measured by the way you serve, you measure my serving, if your attitude and your behavior was measured by the way that you serve my, that, that, that I measured by the way you measure my attitude and my behavior, ain't it funny how sometimes we will judge someone about something that we we're guilty of. David was able to see the sin of the make-believe man in Nathan's story, but David couldn't see his own sin. And so with four words, Nathan gives David a reality check. Nathan says, you are that man. You ought to get yourself a Nathan in your life who is going to call you on your stuff. Someone who's going to confront you about your behavior. Someone who's going to tell you like how it is without all of the form and all of the jugging. You'll have to excuse me for being hood, but you need to get someone in your life who's prepared to say, you're acting a fool. You're acting a mess. Have you lost your mind? Someone who's prepared to say, you are that man. You see, when the only people that you've got around you are the people who will celebrate you and give you the applaud, you're going to be blindsided by your own greatness. And so what happens is pride starts to get in the way. You start to lose your perspective. You start to think that you're greater than you really are. You start to set yourself up for a fall. The Bible says pride comes before the fall. When you are blindsided by your own greatness, you start to become discontent. You start to become ungrateful. You start to lose sight of where your blessings come from. You start to forget how good God has been to you. You're complaining about the car because it's old and raggedy, but you never had a car before. It's ridiculous how we'd say, man, the interest that we have to pay on this house is too much, but five years ago, you had no house. All they ever do is make me work. I'm always getting overtime, work, 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 but you're the same person who was begging God for that job. Get you a Nathan who was prepared to tell you, honestly, yo, you're being ungrateful. Yo, you're being unjudgmental. Yo, you're being prideful. Get you someone like Nathan who was prepared to say, you are that man though. Nathan goes on to say to David, because of what you've done, thus says the Lord, the sword will never depart from your house. The family, your family will rebel against you. Your wives will be publicly humiliated and the son conceived with Bathsheba will die. It's at this point that David confesses. He responds and he says in 2 Samuel 12, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who was born to you shall surely die. Then Nathan departed to his house and the Lord struck the child uh, that Uriah's wife bore to David, and it became ill. Now, when we read this, it can seem like God is about to kill David's son. And the author of the text says that the Lord struck the child and the child became ill. Does that mean then that God killed an innocent baby? It's really important to study the original language of the Bible to get proper understanding of what is being communicated in the text. 
When the writers of the Bible talk about the wrath or the judgment of God, we need to understand that sometimes they'll refer to God's judgment as either active or passive. When the writers of the Bible refer to God's judgment in active terms, that means that God is bringing his judgment upon man. When the writers of the Bible talk about God's judgment in passive terms, that means that God is removing his covering from man And so man has to face the consequences of his decisions. And so when the story, the the author is actually in the original language, is speaking on passive terms. And so God has removed his covering from the house of David. And so David, the great psalmist, the great warrior, David, the great king, is David who's crawling in the dirt. He's fasting. He's praying. He's pleading with God to keep the child alive. He's begging God for mercy. We read in Psalm 51, a prayer that David prays, have mercy on me, God. I've sinned against you, God. Don't banish me from your presence, God. Remove the stain of my guilt, God. Have you ever gone to God like that before? Have you ever prayed those kind of prayers before? You know, the kind of prayer where you're like, Lord, if you just get me out of this thing. (laughs) Have you ever prayed that prayer before? The kind of prayers that say, I'm so sorry, Lord, I shouldn't have done it. I need your presence so desperately right now, God. I should have heeded all the red flags and all the warning signs. I'm talking about the kind of prayer that had you on your knees saying, God, he's actually not the one. <laughs> oh my gosh. The kind of prayer that says, have mercy on me, Lord. David is trying to reverse what's happened. David is trying to deal with God. God is dealing with David. David is in sackcloth and ashes. He's going without food. He's pleading with God to spare the child. He's in the dirt all night long. Even the elders of his house, they're bringing him food. They're trying to get him up, but David refuses to accept the help. He's at the intersection of his life asking God to fix it. And David knows that God can fix it. David knows that God is merciful. David knows that God can forgive him. And so David is repenting before God. No could have nothing on David when it came to repenting. David would fall out on the floor and weep until the Lord answered. But this time when he prayed, there was no answer. What do you do when you're praying for something to go this way and God's answer is going that way? What do you do when God has opened hundreds of doors and not this door? What do you do when God has blessed you hundred times before, but not this time? The Bible says that when David was praying, the child died. David's men, at this point, they didn't know how to approach David. They were saying, how on earth are we supposed to tell him that the child is dead? You know, if this is what he's acting like when the child is alive and ill, what is he going to act like when when we tell him that the child is dead? And so they're over there in the corner, they're whispering. And so the Bible says that when David saw them whispering, he perceived that the child has died. And so he asked them, is the child dead? And the men responded and they said, yes, he is. And this is the point where we see a turnaround in David's life. Upon hearing word that the child was dead, here's what the Bible says that David, about, the, about David. So David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. Then he went to his own house. And when he requested, they set food before him and he ate. David's men are confused and they say, what's wrong with you? When the child was alive and ill, you were fasting and praying and and weeping and crying. But now that he's dead, you're out and about. You're suddenly like on your way or you're, you're going to worship. 
And David says this, I fasted and wept while the child was alive. I thought perhaps the Lord would be gracious to me and let the child live. But why should I fast when the child is dead? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him one day, but he cannot return to me. The Bible says that David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself, and he went into the house of the Lord and he worshiped. There are some of you in the room this morning, you've been on the ground long enough. You've cried long enough. You've blamed yourself long enough. You've been in the dirt long enough. You've been walking the dirt depressed and broken long enough. And you're wondering if perhaps you're too far gone to find your way back. I'm here to let you know that there is a way back. There's a way back from a fall. There's a way back from a disgrace. There's a way back from embarrassment. There's a way back from a disaster, from a divorce, from a crisis. You can never be too far gone for God to bring you back home. It's time for you to get up off the ground. You ought to pick yourself up. Wash yourself of yesterday's dust and begin to anoint yourself. Wash yourself of that guilt, of all of that shame, of all of that indignity. Get it out of your system. Get it out of your heart. Get it out of your mind. Get it out of your soul. Anoint yourself. Change your garments and get your worship on. Because your way back is going to have nothing to do with you and everything to do with amazing grace. Come on, somebody. You've got to be prepared to get up off the ground. Wash yourself, anoint yourself, change your garments and begin to praise your way back. See, I don't know about you, but I've been through so many things and I can't talk on behalf of all of the perfect people. I can't talk on behalf of all of the self-righteous people. I don't know about them, but for all of us who've ever got it wrong, whoever messed up, whoever went too far, who made mistakes, who had regrets, if anybody ought to praise God, it ought to be you. The person next to you might not understand it, but you know that sitting there, you are only living by His amazing grace. You are walking because of His amazing grace. You're eating by His amazing grace. You're moving because of His amazing grace. You're talking by His amazing grace. And if anybody, if nobody else gives God the praise, it ought to be you. The Bible says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. If you've been redeemed, say thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for a fresh start. Thank you, Lord, for a second chance. Thank you, Lord, for giving me life. Thank you, Lord, for making a way out of no way. Thank you, Lord, you did it again. Thank you, Lord, for your favor. Thank you, Lord, for your amazing grace. Grace that has nothing to do with my worthiness. Grace that isn't just given because I'm a good person. Grace that isn't given because I'm trying to be good. Grace that isn't given as an incentive for me to to be good. Grace that isn't given to me just because I promise to be good. Grace that isn't given uh, because uh, some. Grace that isn't about giving someone a lot when they deserve a little. No, this amazing grace is given because every reason for the giving is in the giver. Grace that doesn't really care if you deserve it or not. Grace that doesn't tell you you don't deserve this. Grace that deals with you completely apart from the principle of deserving. Grace that doesn't look for a reason in you because the reasons are not in you. The reasons are in the giver. And you need to know that this is who God is. Grace isn't just what He does. It's who He is. He doesn't just extend grace. It's who He is. He is gracious. He can't help but look upon you as beautiful, as favorable, as acceptable. He can't help but respond with kindness and goodwill and favor. I can ask Uncle Jay to join me on the keys. 
perhaps you're here today and you find yourself in David's shoes. You're in a mess of your own doing. You found yourself in a horrible place because some of some of the decisions that you've made. You're trying to figure out where, how you're even supposed to get out of this thing. It may feel like all hope is gone where you are. It may feel like there's no coming back from what you've done. It may feel like you're too far gone to be redeemed and saved. I came to let you know today that your way back is grace. Amazing grace. But maybe you're here and perhaps you find yourself in Bathsheba's shoes. You've walked into a mess that's not of your own doing. Your life feels like nothing but chaos. Everything seems to be a mess. You feel like you're having to face the consequences for something that you didn't even do. And you're trying to figure out whether the situation that you're in is gonna get any better. You're trying to figure out how you're supposed to find your way back from this mess. You need to know today that your way back is grace. Amazing grace. And you see this grace, not an abstract thing. It's not a concept. It's not a thing. John 1 verse 14 to 7 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 16 says, And of His fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. God's grace is a person. Jesus Christ is God's grace personified. And so here's what grace looks like. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever whosoever believed in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. I think it's fascinating that when God moved the authors of the Bible to write the Gospel of Matthew, right there in the lineage of Jesus is David and Bathsheba. Matthew 1 verse 6 says this, Jesse begot David the king, David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. She's not even known by her name. She's known as the wife of Uriah. She's known by the mess that she's found herself in. She's known by the chaos that is not even of her own doing. She's known by her circumstance. And I couldn't help but wonder why God would write her down as the wife of Uriah. Why couldn't God just call her by her name? And I thought that perhaps God wants us to understand that deep in the DNA of Christ, there runs a grace so amazing that it could redeem even the most undeserving. And so whether you find yourself in David's shoes or Bathsheba's shoes, you need to know that amazing grace is available to you today through the person of Jesus Christ. With every head bowed and every eye closed this morning, God, we thank you for your word. And God, we thank you for your amazing grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.